Evolution is change, and while change might be continuous, its pace may vary over time. The private market's investment landscape has certainly changed over the years, since its beginning in the 1940s, and has grown to become a 10 trillion US dollar industry today. It started with venture capital within private equity, and over time, the term private markets has grown to incorporate additional asset classes, such as infrastructure, real estate, as well as others, such as private debt. More recently, we've seen evolutions in private market fund structures and fee structures, the introduction of new types of strategies, changes in the nature of capital raising, the list goes on. It certainly has been and continues to be an exciting space. Hello to our listeners and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Zenit Patel. I'm an Alternatives Investment Director at Mercer. To highlight the evolution we've seen in private markets over the years that is potentially setting the industry up for further growth, I am joined by Claudia Zeisberger and Billy Charlton. Claudia is the Professor of Entrepreneurship and Family Enterprise at INSEAD and founder of the Global Private Equity Initiative. Billy is Mercer's Global Head of Private Markets Analytics and Research. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Billy. Great to have you both here today. Zina. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Me too. <laughs> so let's kick off with some questions. We've seen that private market allocations have become an essential part of a number of institutional investor portfolios for various reasons. How has the attitude to private markets changed over the last 20 or so years? Um, Claudia, maybe you can kick off. Sure. So clearly, I mean, you're absolutely right. Private capital is the talk of the town right now. So there are quite a number of institutional investors that admittedly, as you said, have experimented with private markets for the last 20 years. But there's a larger number of institutional investors that are still new to private markets or just starting to allocate to private markets. And that includes anything from venture capital to growth equity, all the way to buyouts. So over the last 20 years, what we've seen, and even over the last 10 years, we've seen a larger interest in diversifying the exposure of a global portfolio from public equity and fixed income into private markets. To some extent, that's probably linked to a desire to really build a global portfolio and to allocate more to emerging markets as well, where public markets are very often not representative of what's happening on the ground. So yeah, absolutely. The desire to be to increase exposure or add exposure to private capital is clearly has clearly been the trend in the last decade. Billy, yeah, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I'd like to follow up on Claudia. I totally agree with Claudia's comments and, and want to kind of expand on a couple of them. Um, I think one of the attraction factors, frankly, has been the return series over the last 10 or 20 years in private markets has been so attractive that people are drawn to it. And we've seen this in a couple of different ways. We've seen people expanding the private markets allocations from you know 5 or 10% to 15 or 20% even 
in some cases. So you're seeing an expansion of existing investors, but then you're also seeing new investors come into the market that have never had private equity allocations before. There are a couple of really interesting implications of this, though, that I think are starting to, to prop up. And, and that is that when something's a 5% allocation in your portfolio, you certainly do your due diligence, you, 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 you watch it, you, do, you, you fulfill your fiduciary responsibility. But when it gets to 15 or 20% in your portfolio, all of a sudden it changes the dynamics of how you view your portfolio allocation and how you manage it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we're seeing in private markets is much more attention from boards and trustees to how they manage the private equity allocation because it's become so much more substantial part of that. Uh, so it's really interesting to see how this plays out over the long term. I think what it's forcing the market to do is become much more of a systematic, professionally managed asset class than it was before. Uh, when when you were five percent, you know, it's not that you were getting away with things, but uh, you didn't have to worry about all the questions you were getting. So a good example of this is right now with clients, we're getting questions as to what are my exposures in private equity? Uh, that And that was questions we weren't getting 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now it's really important to understand how much exposure, and, and this came out in more recently, most recently in COVID. Uh, with all the COVID exposure, people got really concerned about how that was gonna impact their portfolios. And because private equity has become a larger part, this became a more important question for private equity than it had previously. So it's been interesting to see how these this allocation decision is changing over time and how that's affecting, backfeeding into how the, the private equity funds manage their portfolios. Yeah, and I guess I mean what it has it has it has more impact also on on the way um, investors are structuring their team. So you're looking for more expertise within the team when it comes to private markets. And then obviously the the, the next step very often is once you've gotten comfortable with your fund investment strategy, then comes the question: Should or should we not do direct investment? So we go down the road that uh, a lot of the Canadian uh, pension plans have gone down and basically allocate directly, which again leads back to different risk profile, different concentration risk or higher concentration risk, and again a need for a very very different team. So yeah, absolutely. I can certainly attest to the level of engagement that we're having with clients as we have conversations, as I have conversations with clients looking to allocate to the asset class for the first time, as well as those looking to further on, be further on in their journey in terms of the allocations. Um, so you both touched on new investors entering the private market space. And another area that has grown in terms of activity and interest is the secondary market. Um, secondary markets, we know, are increasingly becoming attractive for investors who are new to private markets and also those looking to diversify their existing exposure. Given the current environment, how has the secondary market evolved? So. Maybe, maybe I'll take a first stab at that. I just had uh, recently um, a, an alumnus from the team from, from one of the large secondary players uh, from Color Capital in London in town. And the conversation we had was exactly around that. So obviously with, with pressure on the public markets, what we've seen is a greater, let's call it need, a greater demand for liquidity. And the moment you mentioned the word liquidity in the context of of uh, private equity, 
obviously secondaries comes to mind. So with price, with demand for liquidity going up, the price for liquidity has gone up in the last, let's call it two quarters right now in October. So combined with basically ongoing slower fundraising market across all private markets, and because of what we call so nicely the denominator effect, and I'll come to that in a second, um, we've seen basically demand for transactions in the secondary space increasing and thereby prices for secondary uh, entities also um, reacting appropriately. So what does the denominator effect mean? What we've seen, we've seen a correction in the public markets recently. By definition, private markets take longer to adjust to it. So what you're having, if you imagine yourself into in the shoes of a CIO, you're looking at your exposure on the public market, which has dropped, versus your exposure to the private market, which has not adjusted yet potentially to the reality in the public markets. And you're having a, a yeah, a dislocation of your allocation to public versus private. So what it means, you, you may see pressure on the private market exposure, meaning you to get out of private markets just to get back into the balance. If your private equity portfolio, as Billy right now mentioned, uh, is going from 15 to 20%, not because you're allocating more to private equity, but because the public market has, has uh, the public market valuations have dropped, then as a CIO, that's a problem because you have a mandate with regards to your maximum allocation to your asset classes. So we haven't had the denominator effect play a role for a long time, basically not since 2009. But uh, now basically that's playing a role again. And obviously that leads to greater interest in secondaries and greater, but also greater opportunities in secondary markets, because those that are looking to get into private markets are now finding that um, pieces of funds are available for acquisition that were not available six months ago, just because they were just not in the market. So you will see that investors are restructuring their portfolios, restructuring their allocations in private markets, and that basically leads to interest and activity and demand for secondary stakes. It's interesting that you mentioned the point around the denominator effect. Um, you know, because um, I was I was I was reading. Um, um, I, I mean, I, I read a lot of publications, as you know, in this day and age, you read a lot, you listen to a lot, you watch a lot. <laughs> so I remember reading that during the global financial crisis, some LPs with private markets exposures they they halted allocating additional capital to the space, and it turned out that the 2009 vintage and the years following were very good vintages for private equity in particular. Um, and now that we're facing this denominator effect that you so, so nicely explained, what advice or thoughts can you share um, uh, around that as to how investors should approach their allocations going forward? So maybe Billy, maybe you, you, can, you can kick off. Maybe Billy, I'll, I'll let Billy answer sure. that. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, a couple comments. I think, first of all, the secondary markets um, are, have a, a, a number of different functions for different types of investors. So I think for new investors, they're a great way to start building out uh, exposure to private equity. And it because, it, as Claudia mentioned, because it has a shorter time frame, you don't have to wait five years to start seeing cash flows back from the portfolio, which I think is really helpful. I think a second really important function there 
is you start to learn about private markets. And that's one of the really difficult things to, to accomplish by yourself. So secondary markets can often give you an exposure to fund managers, as Claudia mentioned, that you wouldn't get otherwise. And you start learning their strategies. You start, you start understanding kind of how they are different how, and how they're similar. Um, on the other side of it, secondary markets also now perform a nice function of allowing people to start managing their portfolios. And we had a number, a couple of our clients do very large kind of billion dollar-ish secondary transactions uh, in order to start managing the portfolio. And it used to be that in a secondary market sale, if you put a piece up of a GP, that GP would not let you back into their next fund. That was seen as a, a, a vote of a lack of confidence in that GP, and they wouldn't allow you back in the fund. Now they see it, they understand it better as a way to manage the portfolio. So they're, they're seeing you can do a, a transaction now to clean up your portfolio, and then that opens up a slot in that allocation for that same manager later on in their, in their new fund. So one of the things in terms of this type, this time frame is similar to the after the GFC, is LPs that got out of the market had a very difficult time getting back into the market with those same GP, GPs. So what we are suggesting to clients is that if they need to lower their allocation, do it by cutting back on the size of the, of the transaction, size of the commitment, rather than getting out completely. So if you had a $50 million allocation to a fund manager, maybe you go to 20. So you hold that same slot for, for the future. So it, 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 you don't want to get out of a fund completely because it's so difficult to get back in unless you have a really impressive story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we know, with asset classes within private markets, in the private equity, access is a key consideration, you know, access to some of the best managers. And Billy, what you mentioned actually makes a lot of sense in order to ensure that you maintain access to those highly rated funds. So, Claudia, Claudia, you spoke about it, and I wanted to expand on the illiquidity aspect within private markets. And various studies have been done that establish a premium in private markets over public markets. And depending on the asset class or study you look at, it ranges from 200 basis points to 300 basis points. And this is what some people refer to as the illiquidity premium. With the changes that we've seen in private markets, do you think this is an illiquidity premium or a value-add premium or, or both? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one and, in, in, in my view, a, a little bit of an outdated one. So, so, yes, I mean, if I'm an investor and I have options to go into public markets versus private markets, of course, private markets require a bit more patient capital compared to the public markets. But in, to me, especially where, where I stand with, 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 with the long experience also in emerging markets, I think private markets are so much more than just basically trying to beat the illiquidity premium. So take, for example, emerging markets. In uh, emerging markets, uh, which I would argue every global investor needs to gain exposure to those emerging markets. Otherwise, you just don't have a global exposure. Um, To gain that exposure, the public markets more often than not are not 
the reality. They're just not an alternative. Why? Because they're not efficient enough to represent the actual macroeconomic development on the ground. So how do you gain exposure to places like Indonesia, places like Vietnam, places like Latin America? Um, it certainly won't be the public markets. What you need, you need to get in on the ground, invest in businesses that benefit from macroeconomic development, rising middle class, demographic premium, and so on. Um, and that's just only possible through private markets. So I think um, for investors, if and when considering should we or not allocate to private markets, they should keep that in mind. Um, and to me, I wouldn't boil private market exposure down to just an illiquidity premium. I, I have to echo your points that you mentioned around emerging markets. And I, I think a key aspect to consider when putting together a private markets portfolio is the level of global diversification one achieves. And emerging markets allocations should be considered as part of this. Um, I, I, am, I appreciate there are certain risks that are heightened when investing in emerging markets. But understanding how they are managed and mitigated, um, you know, will help figure out the sizing of the allocation to emerging markets within an investor's overall portfolio. Um, but Billy, maybe I could sort of also ask you, go back to the question that I originally asked. I know you wrote a paper particularly uh, focusing on this value add premium that we see in private markets. So maybe you can share some of your thoughts. Yeah, a couple thoughts here. Um, and thank you for the question. Um, the, you know, if I channel the former, I'm a, I call myself a recovering ac academic, uh, <laughs> was Professor Foyle. And if you go back to finance theory, the idea that a premium exists is it should only exist in the event that other people can't capitalize on that premium. And if you look at all the capital in private markets these days, it's hard to make the case that there's not, there, there's a, a limited amount of capital available to private markets. So, I don't buy into, and I haven't for quite a while, this illiquidity argument. Now, I do believe that you have to um, pay attention to that aspect. And what we're seeing in, in clients' portfolios is that their allocations are determined by the liquidity that's available to them. So if you're, if you're a public pension plan um, with a lot of retirees, that has a different liquidity dimension than a sovereign wealth fund. Um, however, the sovereign wealth funds can play in private markets very easily. So they can bid away that premium. So I don't buy into that. What I what I rather think about is the value add premium. You mentioned that we put a paper out on this um, about a, some earlier this year, and the idea behind that was the reason we pay our managers, you know, roughly two and twenty for a fees and carry is that they're able to fundamentally change these companies in ways that make them more valuable from once they bought them. It used to be that uh, early in the days of private equity. It was a financial structuring game where you threw leverage on the company, you bought the company, you threw leverage on it, you flipped it, and you were done. Now it's about operations. Now it's about what's marketing looks like, what does distribution look like, do you do M&A, do you change the strategy? There's all number of dimensions that private equity managers now, <clears throat> excuse me, now use to improve the value of the company. And that's one of the reasons they have to own so much of the company. And that's also one of the reasons they have to hold it for the length of time is those changes take time. So that, that's something that I think is important for people to understand. It's not, there, there, there's a, a common misconception that um, private equity is public equity with leverage. And that's 
totally untrue at this point. It's about what value can a manager add to a company. And we've seen that over and over in our portfolios. Absolutely. And there was a time when I think very topical was when um, investors were questioning the price levels at which managers were entering into deals, you know, and what's important and to, to mention there is that where managers in particular are willing to pay up for an asset, it's because they can see ways of creating further further value in the asset in the ways that you mentioned just now, Billy, in terms of operationally what can be done, technologically what can be done, those value creation elements in terms of eking out value for the assets. Yeah, and I think that's another really important evolution too in private equity over the last especially 10 years is it used to be that private equity would buy a company and would run it as it was running for a while. Now you see managers coming in with value creation plans where within the first 100 days, they have to get all these things done. Um, And it used to be that if the CEO, uh, they'd give a CEO two or three years in order to accomplish things. Now it's six months to a year. They're much more active on changing management out very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken about trends we're seeing at the GP and the LP level and some practical aspects relating to private markets. But let's talk about the changing demographic in the industry uh, across all stakeholders. I was at a conference recently, and this too was very topical. So without giving away my age, I am what they call a senior millennial. And I have exposure to individuals across baby boomers, Gen Z, and other generations, both on the GP and the LP side, each with their specific preferences to doing things. What do you both think has changed and needs to change to continue to evolve as an industry, to not only make us fit as employees in the private market space, but also in the way we communicate in the industry? Claudia, maybe you can kick off with that one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. It, it probably affects all industries, not just uh, not just the financial industry. But uh, what we're seeing um, across the board from the younger generation is just a greater a greater demand, a greater need for um, answers to questions regarding to sustainability, regarding to what you as a business or an investor are contributing to the environment, the community that you're engaging with. And overall, more questions on not just whether profits are being made, but at what cost those profits are being made. And I don't mean necessarily financial costs. So I think we're we're dealing with a with a rising generation that is just more inquisitive and asking more questions and good questions on uh, issues around sustainability. And I mean, given what we've seen with regards to climate change just in the last uh, uh, in the last twelve months in all countries around the world, it's 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 uh, it's I think it's a good thing to to have a to have a generation asking. Uh, to kind of hold the feet to the fire of some of the investors as well as of some of the businesses and asking them to 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 really question whether this is the only way that products are can can be produced um, or the way profits can be made. So I think this is uh, something and obviously I mean we've seen 
the rise of uh, the rise of impact funds. We've seen the rise of um, funds that have a ESG mandate or overlay were again in turn being heavily criticized. So I think those are good conversations. Those are necessary conversations. And I hope that uh, they will be held with the right kind of people around the table to move the industry in the right direction. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, private capital has a tremendous impact through its portfolio companies on how industry is developing, on how businesses are behaving. And it would be nice to see them use that leverage, not financial leverage, but involvement as leverage in, uh, in the right way. Absolutely. Billy, do you have any, any thoughts? Yeah, a couple of thoughts here that I think take it a little bit of a different direction. One of the things I've, I've, I've been in, in the industry for over 20 years. And originally when I got in the industry, most of the paths for GPs came either through um, investment banking or management consultants. Mm -hmm. And now what we're seeing is that because the industry has developed a hierarchy uh, where you have you know, $400 million funds, billion dollar funds, $5 billion, $28 billion funds, you're seeing much more of a path within the industry within private equity where you can start your career in private equity and continue it in, in other funds versus spending your, 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 your time in another area and then starting a fund. So I think that's going to have some profound impacts on how the development of, excuse me, of diversity within the, the organizations with what the focus of those organizations are. And you're going to see a, a different set of skills develop over time as, as this has become more professionalized. Well, this certainly has been a great discussion so far, um, and I could talk to you both for much longer. But unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. Um, so as a final question, if I were to ask you, um, if there is one innovation or trend you would like to see develop in the private market space going forward, what would that be? Yeah. Okay. Let's go with you first again. Okay. So I would still like to see the private equity industry to be confident to ensure greater transparency and ensure more education, especially as we're moving towards uh, to a trend of, or especially as we're seeing a trend towards we call it so nice the democratization of private capital, meaning the um, the possibility to giving retail investors or not necessarily high net worth individuals access to private markets. I think there's a lot more education to be done to ensure that everyone who goes into private markets, whether it's venture capital or whether it's private equity, with eyes wide open. So uh, transparency and a continued push towards the um, the investments in better businesses, in businesses that have a mandate with regards to environment, social, and governance. Ali, what about you? Well, first of all, true confessions here, I'm a data guy. <laughs> so I, I would like to see better data. And I can give you a great example of that. I was uh, audit a annual meeting last week. And the GP, the, the, I was at the LPAC, the, the LP advisory committee meeting. 
and we the the issue of valuations came up, and the GP was asking us as LPs what other GPs are doing, how are they handling their valuation changes, and that's something that that tells you something about the, the level of data availability when the GPs don't know what other <clears throat> excuse me other GPs are doing, that becomes a big issue. So I would love to see you know as much data as I could. Now the, the challenge on that is. How do you maintain your proprietary structure, your proprietary deal structure, when you release the data? And that—that's not an easy question for me to answer. Uh, but I think for me, it's all about better data. Yeah. So better data, transparency, education—key themes um, that 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 you would like to see. Um, evolve and get the industry get better at going forward. I absolutely share those, those sentiments. So um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um, from what I've heard today, the private market space continues to be an exciting one to be in. Um, with the changes we're seeing in the industry, we are certainly setting ourselves up for a brighter future. Thank you, Bali. Thanks, Claudia, um, for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners. Um, it's been a great discussion. Thank you, Zina. Thank you, Claudia. Thanks very much. Thank you, everyone. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.